Well, it is a really big weekend, and uh, no, I'm not talking about the Colts opener. All right. Uh, this, uh, this past Friday night, we had our second campus vision night at our Carmel campus, and we just had a packed house and just an incredible evening, uh, just looking back at uh, God's faithfulness to us in our past, so that way we can ask the question, God, what do you want to do in us and through us next? And uh, the very next campus vision night is going to be this evening at our downtown campus at 6 p.m. So downtown crew, looking forward to being with you here in uh, just a, a few short hours. And uh, those of you at our Midtown, Fishers, Northwest campuses, uh, the dates of your campus vision nights are behind me. And so mark that down, make it a priority to be here. If you can't uh, get here uh, at the night of your campus vision night, just go to another one because the content is exactly the same. You don't need to RSVP. Kids uh, programming is available. And uh, maybe the, the most important reason of all, you get a free t-shirt if you come. And uh, you know, these t-shirts, they, they won't be available till later in the fall, but if you come to a vision night, then you'll get uh, one and you'll get it for uh, free, right? Well, uh, if you got a Bible, go ahead and head over to 1 Thessalonians chapter two. 1 Thessalonians two is uh, where we're gonna be today as we wrap up this series of messages that we have been in. And uh, earlier this summer, um, my oldest daughter's boyfriend was over at our house and we were all kind of hanging out on the back porch and we were gonna watch a movie and we didn't know what to watch. And, and uh, somebody said that, you know, they, they had never seen um, Mel Gibson's movie Braveheart before. And in that moment, I just thought, you know, I am failing you as a dad. And so, you know, we, we turned it on and we watched it and, and uh, I was reminded of how much I love that movie because that's like my favorite movie of all time. And there's a bunch of memorable scenes in it. But then there's this one scene that I think is just the most memorable. And some of you that have seen the movie are gonna know what I'm talking about, where um, William Wallace befriends a guy by the name of Robert the Bruce, who is the King of the Scots. And uh, he uh, like is inspired by Wallace and what he's doing, um, but he doesn't quite have the courage that William Wallace has. But Wallace comes to him and he says, you know, you're the only one that can unite the Scottish clans together to overcome the English. And he really wants to do this, but he's got some pretty corrupt people around him. And so they convince him to betray William Wallace on the battlefield. And there's this scene where the two of them square off. Wallace has no idea that it's his friend. And because he's got full armor on and he gets the better of him, he's on top of him, he's getting ready to take his life. And that's when Robert the Bruce yells out, he's like, it's me, you know, and takes off the helmet. And there's this scene where Mel Gibson drops to his knees. Maybe you remember it. And he's got this look on his face where it's just like he's ready to die because he realizes in that moment that he's been betrayed by a friend. And I would just venture to say that the part of the reason why that scene is so powerful is we can all relate to it. There's been a moment in all of our lives where we've been in relationship with someone, like not like an acquaintance, but somebody that we know pretty well and we love them and we trust them and we thought the feelings were mutual. And then they ended up wounding or hurting us, whether it was intentional or not. And it's a deep, deep betrayal and it sets us back. Now, as we are wrapping up this series today, if you're just now joining us, we've been in this series looking at a handful of issues in which it just kind of gets the gears of deconstruction moving in all of our lives. And today I want to wrap up by talking about something that actually has been around for a long time, but the term is relatively new. And as a pastor, I've just been hearing more and more of this term. It's, it's a reason that people are giving for either walking away from church or deconstructing their faith altogether. And it's called church hurt. And it's an umbrella term used to describe a wide range of experiences in which somebody was wounded, betrayed, or had their trust broken by someone within or who was representing the church. There's a guy by the name of Jerome Gay who wrote a book on 
church hurt. And he provides this definition. He says, church hurt refers to the pain inflicted by religious institutions, its people, and or its leadership. Pain that distances sufferers from their communities and sometimes from God. And so maybe, you know, you were all excited about your faith and you jumped in to serve somewhere within a church, but then as time went on, you began to feel like you were a bit taken advantage of and you got burned out and nobody seemed to care. Maybe you felt shamed, shunned, or gossiped about when you went through an unwanted divorce or maybe a reoccurring addiction kind of resurfaced in your life. And instead of having loving people come around you and walk with you through that, you felt isolated. Maybe you felt disillusioned and betrayed when the widespread church scandal got exposed or maybe the secret life of a celebrity pastor got revealed. Maybe somebody that used their position of authority in your life in ways to control or manipulate you for selfish gain, church hurt. And as a result of this, you just kind of pushed away from, from people, pushed away from the church and you sort of view every organization or every leader or every pastor through the lens of cynicism and suspicion because of your hurt. And as a pastor, I not only see this a lot, I, I can feel this in the environment in which we live. And I understand the ramifications of what we're dealing with and what is at stake. Uh, my predecessor uh, was a guy by the name of Howard Bramer. He served here as the pastor faithfully for nearly a quarter of a century. And I'll never forget when I was getting ready to officially step into this role, he kind of pulled me aside and behind closed doors, I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Aaron, it takes years to build trust, but just a moment to break. And when trust gets broken, spirits get crushed. And I think that's what the author of Proverbs is getting at in chapter 18, verse 14, when he writes, the human spirit can endure a sick body. We can endure a lot, but a crushed, but, but who can bear a crushed spirit? An autoimmune disease is something that I know maybe many of you kind of wrestle with. And that's what happens when the body's natural defense system can't tell the difference between normal healthy cells and foreign cells. And so the body attacks normal cells. And I would say that, that church hurt is the spiritual autoimmune disease within the body of Christ, where the body of Christ starts attacking itself. And we begin to see other believers as enemies instead of family. Paul describes this in Galatians chapter five, when he says the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out, beware of destroying one another. And as a result of this very real hurt, what can happen is we can reduce who God is to the worst actions of a few of his people leading some of us to maybe walk away from the church for good or to deconstruct our faith altogether. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, Dorothy, when she travels to Oz and gets a, a glimpse of what's behind the curtain and disillusioned with that, we click our heels and we say, I'm gonna go do this on my own. You know, I love Jesus, just not the church. And oftentimes somebody's confusion or disillusionment with God is not theological. It's relational. And as a result of being hurt by people, we can kind of push back and we're very, very cautious about entering into another relationship again. When I was growing up, uh, my sister and I uh, had two cats. My cat was named Cheese, her cat was named Midnight. And a third stray cat showed up one day 
And um, this cat, it was very clear, had, had been abused because it would never let us anywhere near it. And so we named him Timmy, um, Timid, you know, Timmy Timid. And uh, this cat, we had this cat around our house for years. We could never get close to it. And I, I've met a lot of people like that that have been hurt and abused by others. And so there's just this sort of like invisible wall that goes up. We're just gonna keep our distance from others. And I just want you to know that while that is so understandable, that's not what you were made for. You were made for so much more. You know, I mentioned a few minutes ago that um, church hurt has been around for a long time, but the, the term is relatively new. But Paul actually seems to be uh, writing to describe his own experience of church hurt in his letter to the Thessalonians. And that's our passage today. I wanna to read 10 verses out of this letter. Listen to Paul's description of the hurt that he has experienced as well as the people to which he is writing to. And he says this in verse one, he goes, you yourselves know dear brothers and sisters that our visit to you was not a failure. You know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. Yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. So you can see we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And our God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we have never sought it out from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but instead we were like children among you or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We love you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. You yourselves are our witnesses and so is God that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of you believers. Now what's going on here? Well, the background of this passage is that uh, Paul is recounting to them how badly he'd been mistreated in Philippi. Now in the book of Acts, we, we, hear, we see all of this recorded there where Paul is traveling around on something called missionary journeys. And he would come into a city, he would uh, meet some people, lead them to Christ and start a church and then he would move on. And when he arrives at the city of Philippi, he notices that there is a servant girl who is possessed by a demon. And so Paul cast the demon out of her, which you would think would be a good thing. But as it turns out, they didn't receive it as a good thing because the owners of the servant girl were using her as income because the demon was telling people's fortunes and they were charging for it. And so now once Paul got rid of the demon, then their source of income got dried up. And so they uh, uh, throw, kind of cast a riot against Paul. They throw him in prison. He's a Roman citizen. So it turns out you can't throw him in prison. So they release him and he moves on to Thessalonica. And there the Jewish crowd responds to the gospel and religi the religious leaders are so jealous of this and they're threatened by it that it says in Acts chapter 17 that they cry out and they say, these men, referring to Paul and his companions, have turned the world upside down in the worst possible way of that term. And now they've come here to do the same. And so what they were doing is they were actually leveraging the hurt that some of the people had experienced in this city. Because what was going on in the Greco-Roman world is just like today. 
there were false teachers and swindlers and people pretending to be something that they were not. And they would come into a community and they would cheat people out of money. They would teach their false ideas. They would take advantage of the people's trust. They would sleep with their women and then they would move on leaving just all this wreckage and hurt behind them. So now these insecure, insecure religious leaders are basically pointing to Paul and saying, he's no different. He is just a false teacher here to take advantage of you. So they were taking advantage of the people's hurts and they were hurting Paul in the process. And so Paul's response to the Thessalonians here is he points out like three things. Paul's trying to do a little bit of cleanup. He's trying to patch things up and he, he explains his motives. In other words, here's the heart behind why I'm doing what I'm doing. And then he explains his methods. He says, this is how I'm doing what I'm doing. And then he finally explains his mission, the reason why he is doing what he's doing. And we really see his heart, his pastoral heart in this passage. In fact, John Stott actually says of this passage, he says, this reveals more about the heart, soul, and emotion of Paul than any other passage in the New Testament. So here's where I wanna go with this. When we are talking about being hurt by others, there's a couple of things that I want us to know. First of all, because we are relational beings and we, by the way, are all flawed, broken, sinful people. That means that when we enter into relationship, we are all susceptible to being hurt and we're all capable of hurting others. And when it comes to trying to bring some healing to that and try to figure out like, okay, how do we move on? We got to begin with this like a framework here that, that Paul provides. Well, we got to go to motives. We got to go to methods. We got to go to mission. But before, that's the framework. But I want to kind of dial in on some of that. And, and whenever we, we've got to address hurt of any kind, the first place to begin is to acknowledge how real it is. And that's what I want to do today. That for those of you that are here or you're listening or you're tuning in online and you're like, I've been hit with the shrapnel of church hurt. Then I just want you to know that I believe you and that is very, very real. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was asked one time about what the greatest commandment was. And his answer was this. He goes, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God. And then he said, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we can summarize the entire law into these two commands. Love God, love people. In other words, you will fulfill the entire law if you can do those two things perfectly. But the big, big problem with that is I don't know of anybody that can. Like I certainly can't, like I can't love God perfectly and I can't love people perfectly. And so that introduces the possibility of hurt. And the only thing worse than denying our possible role in someone else's hurt is to diminish someone else's experience of hurt. And we don't wanna sweep it under the rug. We don't wanna get defensive. We, we don't wanna tell somebody, hey, you know, just, just get over it and move on. That's not helpful, but causes more harm to the hurts. You know, when somebody's been hurt, it's almost like my counselor puts it like this. He says, if there's been an offense, if there's been a hurt, you've got to do the necessary cleanup in order to heal from that and move on. You can't bypass the cleanup. It's kind of like if you, you know, drop something and it shattered and you, you know, spilled you know, some kind of juice or something all over the kitchen floor. You can't just go, well, let's just kind of you know, ignore it and it'll go away. No, it's just going to get sticky and, and eventually start to smell. 
and we all have that, have that relationally in our lives. Like we can't just overlook the, the offense or the brokenness. We've got to do some necessary cleanup, which means that somebody has to be heard and they have to be seen. And if there is abuse that has occurred or if there's been some sort of injustice that needs to be addressed and that needs to be handled. And unfortunately, I wish this wasn't the case, but unfortunately it is. When it comes to like, you know, ministry, when it comes to churches, there are wolves in sheep's clothing that cause intentional pain. And so being heard and understood and correcting some of that injustice and seeking forgiveness and if possible reconciliation are necessary steps in cleanup towards healing. Now, with that said, let me just say this. Reconciliation with the person or the group that has hurt you, it, like it may not be possible. Like maybe that, that group or that person like is no longer in your life or they are no longer around. Maybe that person doesn't think that they've done anything wrong. Like from their perspective, they're like, I, I, don't, I don't see what I did wrong. And so they refuse to, to meet with you. Maybe they just deny any sort of wrongdoing. Now, this is where forgiveness becomes not only important, but absolutely critical and a powerful and necessary step in the process of healing. You forgiving them is absolutely critical, even if reconciliation is not. And speaking from experience, like whenever I've been hurt or offended or betrayed, uh, I don't know about you guys, but uh, and the other person isn't around or they don't seem to care, they don't think they've done anything wrong. Oftentimes I've been fooled into thinking, well, the only card I've got left to play is anger or bitterness or thoughts of revenge. You know what I'm talking about? Like I'm just imagining that their brakes go out and they go over a cliff and they scream to their death, you know? It's just like, and it's just, it makes you feel so good and you're just kind of like holding on to that and you're saying, oh, I'm gonna hold on to that bitterness and revenge to make them pay. And in reality, who's paying? You are. Like in reality, you're thinking that by holding on to bitterness and revenge that you're keeping them locked up in a prison cell when in reality, you're the one looking out from behind the bars. And they, they probably don't even realize that you're hurting. Maybe at worst, like they don't even care or maybe they're just not sure how to change things. And that's when you need to forgive so that you can be set free because you'll never heal until you're set free. I remember... Um, and I'm going to get to this here in a minute that, that uh, you know, uh, church hurt is two-way. You know, a pastor's experienced church hurt as well, just maybe for a different set of reasons. And there was like a season in my life where I, I was experiencing like a lot of church hurt. You know, I'd, I'd uh, you know, maybe taken a few shots or criticisms or gotten blamed for some things that wasn't my fault. Or maybe I'd just invested and poured into people uh, uh, so much. And then they, they left the church and they took a few jabs at me on the way out the door. And, and I was burned out and I was just kind of in a low spot. And I, I sat down with the counselor and he slapped a piece of paper right in front of me. And he goes, Aaron, I want you to write down the names of every person who has ever hurt or offended you. And I thought, oh man, we're gonna be here all day, brother. You know, as I pull out my pen and, and now here's the thing that surprised me is that I thought I was gonna fill the page when in reality, I just wrote a few names. It wasn't as many as I thought. It was that, 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 that the offense had gotten kind of expanded in, in my mind. And then as I wrote those names, he, he looked at the list and he goes, you need to release and forgive every one of them, even if reconciliation isn't possible. My good friend, Steve Carter, and some of you might recognize that name. Steve's been here to preach before. Steve was unfortunately in the middle 
of this like church-wide scandal in which he was uh, in leadership, but he was not aware of what was going on until like it all kind of got revealed. And, and uh, he was sort of in the middle of a lot of that. And I remember sitting around a campfire with Steve a couple of years ago. And I said, hey, Steve, like how have you, I mean, because if you know Steve, like he's such a sweet, soft-hearted, pastoral, you know, kind of a guy. And I said, Steve, why is it that you haven't given up on the church? Why, I mean, you've seen some of the worst. Why is it that you've got such a sweet spirit? I'll never forget what he said to me. He goes, Aaron, I realized that it wasn't the church that hurt me. It was a few misguided people within the church who hurt me. And there is a difference. And we need to acknowledge that it is real. And we need to pursue forgiveness, even if the other party doesn't deserve forgiveness or want forgiveness so that you can be healed. Here's the second thing. We've got to acknowledge what it is not. Now, I want my tone to be very pastoral and kind here because I realize that for some of you, church hurt is raw right now because you've just come through it. And it's kind of like, you know, that operation board game. I know that I might bump up against a little bit of a nerve. And so I want to say this very kindly, but very pastorally, but I think it's crucial that I do. Uh, There's a lady by the name of Natalie Runyon in her work, Raised to Stay After Church Hurt. And she puts it like this. She's, I wrote it down. She said, just as, as uh, none of us ever want to be wolves in sheep clothing, we also never want to be sheep who cry wolf. And there is, we, here's what church hurt is not, right? Just, I just wrote down a few things. Church hurt, first of all, is not disagreement. You know, just because, you know, we make a decision that you don't agree with, that, that, that's not church hurt. Now we can do it in a disagreeable way, maybe a hurtful way or, or a, you know, in, a, in the wrong tone, but disagreement in and of itself is not church hurt. Confrontation. You know, maybe I've been confronted. You know, it's been, it's in the moments where I have grown the most spiritually and emotionally when somebody loved me enough to tell me the truth and to say, Aaron, you're kind of acting like a fool. And that has hurt, but that has been pain for my good. And it doesn't mean that I've been harmed. The book of Proverbs says that wounds from a friend can be trusted. Uh, several years ago, I was out in the lobby between services meeting and talking to people. And this lady walked up to me and she asked if I'd pray for her. And so I was like, absolutely. And so we pray, which meant that we needed to, you know, kind of, you know, violate each other's personal space just a little bit. You know, we were just a little bit closer than probably what you would be if, if uh, uh, you were just having a conversation with somebody. So we get down and I pray for her and she says, thanks. She walks away. About 30 seconds later, she walks back and she hands me a breath mint. Like she didn't even say a word. She just hands me a breath mint, walked away. And I was like, Ouch. But thank you. You know, it's like, yeah, that's, that's, that's wounds from a friend. Doesn't mean that I should be offended, you know. Uh, here, here's another one is, is accountability. You know, somebody holding me accountable to a, a standard and then uh, loving me enough to come back around and ask the tough questions. I mean, that's certainly uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean that I should be offended. Uh, being told no you know, maybe, maybe you have this idea or you want the church to try this program or you tried out for the team and you didn't make it and, and, and you, you were told no. And, and, and maybe you got offended by that. I, I had another one. This is not gonna be on the screen, but you know, when the pastor doesn't know your name, you know, that's not necessarily church hurt in and of itself. Now, now if, if I've met you like 10 times, maybe, right? But, but in and of itself, and I debated whether I wanted to share this story, but it went okay in the first two services. So we'll see how it goes in this one, right? Um, but uh, several years ago, um, this is when my kids were really, really little and we were in Saturday night services and I was preaching all day Sunday and, and we were having like a church kind of like dinner kind of picnic thing on the yard out here. And we had food trucks uh, over and it was like August. It was like really, really hot. And uh, what you need to understand is that my wife, like when our kids were really, really little, pretty much like on, you know, Saturday nights and Sundays, like she was a single mom, you know, because she had to get the kids out the door and I wasn't around because I was doing this. And uh, so, you know, Sunday night, she like walks up to me with the kids and she's tired from, you know, being there all day with them. And she looks at me and she goes, 
feed your children. And I was like, you know, yes, ma'am. You know, so I'm like, you know, she, she tags me in and now I'm not Pastor Aaron anymore. I'm dad. And so I've got my kids and I'm giving my wife a break and, I'm, and they're whining and complaining and they're hot and they're hungry. And so I'm trying to navigate through the crowd in the churchyard to the food trucks to get them some food. And there's this family that, that comes up to me and they're brand new to the church. And they're like, oh man, we just moved here from another state and we've been watching online and we're so excited to be here and so excited to meet you. And I really did want to meet them, but I've got some crying kids. And so my, my attention was kind of divided. And so, um, you know, I wasn't able to talk uh, to them like I would like. And man, they got so offended. And I got this scathing email that following week. They were like, you know what? We were so, um, you know, really just offended that you didn't really act like you wanted to meet us and you didn't really talk to us. And honestly, like you don't appear to be the guy that you uh, are. And I apologized to them and tried to give them a little bit of context uh, for what was around all of that. And it simply wasn't enough. Like I remember like the next time I saw them, like just kind of gave me the cold shoulder because we can be so easily offended. And offense is the bait of Satan. It's the pandemic of the people of God. So we have an enemy who wants you to be offended and he wants you to stay offended so that you might miss all the opportunities that God wants to use to bring healing and growth into your life. See, we got to recognize who the real enemy is. And I want to be really careful bringing that up because I don't want to over-spiritualize this or let narcissistic leaders who are full of themselves off the hook. That's not what I'm saying. But there, there is an enemy and it's not a human being. There's an enemy behind the scenes trying to divide us and trying to keep us offended. And so he uh, does everything that he can to kill and steal and destroy. And uh, his, his play is never to collapse the church from pressure or persecution on the outside because he knows what history tells us, that every time the church has been persecuted or there's been pressure from outside society, the church just grows stronger and more influential in its impact. Now, what he does is he gets behind the scenes and he divides us from within. He just gets you offended. And uh, back in, in 2020, in the midst of our greatest crisis, I think, and I'm talking about the big C church here, I think that we had a few bright spots during that year, but I think we largely missed so many opportunities that God wanted to use to work through us because we were divided over secondary issues that weren't that important and we turned on each other. So we got to recognize our real enemy, but here's the most important thing. We got to recognize the real savior. And so much hurt takes place in our lives when we put a flawed human being on a pedestal that they never should have been put on to begin with. You know, it's always a mind trip for me how, you know, Jesus spent three years with these 12 disciples. And he's doing everything that he can to teach them and to model for them servant leadership. And then uh, at the final exam, they all flunk. It's like the night before his, his arrest and crucifixion, they, they can't even stay awake with him to pray. And Judas, you know, gets the blame for the most overt, you know, betrayal, but all of them betrayed him. And then Jesus resurrects from the dead. He comes back and appears with them for uh, quite a few days. And, and then he ascends into heaven. He basically just kind of hands the keys of the church over to them. And he's like, hey, you know, the spirit of God will be with you. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, if I'm Jesus and I just experienced that much hurt from some of my very best friends, I'm like, okay, guys, we're doing another three-year tour. <laughs> like, I mean, we're going uh, to get these lessons kind of ingrained into you. But instead, Jesus entrusts the church to a group of unproven, flawed human beings. He's been doing it ever since. 
You just read through the pages of scripture. You just see that God uses flawed, broken, ordinary people. I'm so thankful that he does because that gives all of us the hope that God might use each one of us. But that also means that you shouldn't worship the person God uses. You worship the God of the person. Your eyes are fixed upon Jesus. Listen, I don't want any of you like coming to this church because of me or any other pastor. I want you coming to this church because your eyes are fixed upon Jesus. And so what we see just a casual reading of the New Testament is that we see that the church has never been a problem-free zone. It's always been problems in it. But in fact, we wouldn't have much of the New Testament if it wasn't for church hurt. Because you've got these people that are writing these letters to churches and they're trying to clean up some of the messes and they're trying to bring their eyes back up towards Jesus. And as human beings, we are called to lead something holy. And since we are not holy in and of ourselves, that it is inevitable that given enough time, we're gonna mess things up. And leaders and pastors are flawed and very human. I spend a lot of time with pastors and some have unresolved issues and trauma in their lives. And instead of dealing with that in healthy ways, they went into ministry to earn the approval of a father that they never got. Or they were given a a platform prematurely and they didn't have the character to sustain the influence and it absolutely crushed them. And unfortunately, we live in a culture that elevates charisma over character and prioritizes public performance over personal integrity until there's a mess up and then they're pounced on. And that's just a recipe for disaster. You know, some people feel entitled to a position just because they feel called to it. And man, we gotta be really, really careful with that word called. Now, please hear me. I'm not discrediting calling. God calls men and women to serve. But we've, all, we've also gotta be careful that we don't use it sort of like as an override. We say, no, I have to do this because God called me to this. And oftentimes we'll have um, young people reach out to me and just say, you know, I, I feel called into ministry and how do I do what you do? And how do I get kind of started in all this thing? And what I've noticed, not, not with all, but with some, there's almost like this sense of entitlement. Like, Aaron, how do I like, you know, get up there and do what you do like next week? And it's almost like they're like entitled, you know, to something in their 20s that some people have bled for in their 40s. And now I sound like the crotchety old guy saying, I used to walk up, you know, hill to school both ways in the snow. (laughs) But you know, you know where I got my start? I did not get my start on this platform. I got my start leading a seventh grade middle school girls discipleship group. I almost lost my faith doing that. That was like, that was rough. But that was absolutely needed during that time. So whenever I have young people come to me and they're like, hey, you know, I feel called to ministry. Like, what, what, where should I get started? And here's the thing. I want to fan that flame. I want, to, I want to say, man, if God's calling you to that, like, what can I do to help? But here's the question that I always ask. Why do you want to do this? Why do you feel called to do That's a question of motive. By the way, I would ask that of all of us today, whether you're in full-time ministry or not, maybe it's, maybe it's your company that you're leading in or you manage people or you're leading a small group, whatever it is. Like, what's your motivation to do what you do? Is it to get accolades? Is it to get attaboys? Is it to, is it to have people affirm you? Is it to earn the approval of a mom or a dad that you never got? Because if you do, you'll end up, you'll end up getting into this position that your character hasn't been formed for and that's when people get hurt. By the way, can I just say, I know that I'm standing on a platform, lights shining on me. This is not as glamorous as what it appears to be. 
right? The distance I found from pedestal to punching bag isn't very far. And uh, I wanna read just some stats here. And uh, uh, fortunately, I don't consider my, I don't, I, don't, I can't relate to these stats. Uh, because honestly, like even though I've had some moments and we're not a perfect church, man, you guys just make it a joy to serve. I love being your pastor. But that's the exception, not the norm. And national t- statistics say this, 75% of pastors describe themselves as extremely stressed. 70% say that they are depressed and that their self-esteem has dropped since entering the ministry. Half would leave if they could, but they don't know what they would do for a living if they could, so they stay. 80% feel ministry undermines family life. 80% of ministry spouses feel unappreciated. Now, the reason why I put that out there is not that you would feel sorry for pastors. Let's say those statistics are so high and so alarming that if those are our shepherds and they are leading from a place of depression and low self-esteem and burnout, then that means they're not gonna make very healthy decisions and that's how people get hurt. Um, I never forget having a mentor say to me when I first got into ministry, he said, Aaron, you're going to need to develop the courage of a lion because you're gonna have to make some unpopular decisions at times that people won't understand, but you gotta make the decision anyway. Courage of a lion. And you gotta have the uh, skin of a rhino because you're gonna take shots from people, uh, whether you deserve them or not. So you gotta develop a thick skin. Then he says this, but never forget that even though you need a courage of a lion and the skin of a rhino, you need to keep your heart as soft as a teddy bear. Because what can happen is, is that your courage turns into abrasiveness, your skin becomes calloused, and that's when your heart becomes as hard as stone. And that's how people get hurt. So can I just say to you today, why should you not give up on the church? Why should you be a part of a church family? I have people that ask me this at times, they're like, hey, you know, you know, I can be a Christian and not go to church. And I would say, technically you're right because our, your salvation is not tied to your church attendance. You're saved by grace through faith through the finished work of Jesus alone, period. God is not up in heaven putting a little gold star in your attendance chart saying, well, I guess they were there this week. I guess I'll let them in one day. You know, like that, that, it's not tied to your salvation. So why... You can love Jesus and not the church. So, so why should you be a part of it? And I just want to summarize it all into one word. Formation. The primary purpose of being a part of a church is the formation of your character into the image and likeness of Jesus. The primary purpose of the church is not producing content. Like I know that because of technology, this is not the only place that you can get content. And I know that most of you like don't, like you, you, you're receiving content from other places. And the reason why I know that is because you tell me, like, hey, your sermon is pretty good this week, but man, that's Stephen Furtick. Like he really <laughs> lit it up this last weekend. And I'm like, move to Charlotte. All right, just, if you like him that much, move to Charlotte. All right, I know that some of you, like you're in like your 16th Bethmore Bible study. All right, I mean, it's just like, you're podcasting all over the place. The, the reason why you're part of a church is not content. You can get a lot better content than what I could ever produce. And don't you dare say amen to that. All right, just, just keep that to yourself. The, the, the purpose of the church is not felt needs. You know, like, oh man, we're just gonna go to church because the coffee's so good there. Or, you know, we just love the worship or the kids ministry, or we just love waiting in the parking lot, you know, just trying to wait to get out. It's not felt need. So what is the purpose of the church? And, you know, here's the thing. You can stay online. You can do an online mentoring thing. You can read all kinds of spiritual books and you can fill your Spotify list with worship music. And you might grow your head knowledge and you might even, you know, have some soft feels, but you won't be formed. 
Because formation requires relationship. Formation requires community. Formation requires friction. When, which might mean the potential that you could possibly be hurt. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He goes, if the church is not making disciples, then all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible are a waste of time. Christianity is not an autonomous religion. Jesus is forming a family and a community, not a group of individuals with a private faith. And guys, I will actually be held accountable to that. I'll, I'll be held accountable to, to any sort of like abuse or injustice that might happen. I'll be held accountable to people's experience here, but I'll also be held accountable to your formation. I wish that weren't so, but Hebrews 13, 17 says otherwise. It's a verse that um, will likely make both of us uncomfortable just for different reasons. And here's what it says in verse 17. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. I know that that is not a bumper sticker that any of you will ever put on your car. But then and here's why. It's not because they're great, not because they've got life all figured out or they're just phenomenal human beings, but because their work is to watch over your souls and they are accountable to who? To God. Yeah, right there. Some of you are like, man, you don't understand. That leader got away with abuse. That leader got away with injustice. That leader got away with being a narcissistic jerk. No, they didn't. God will hold them accountable. And then he says, give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your Benefit. Now, with me reading that verse, let me just say this. That verse should never, ever be used as a trump card to give anybody a reason to mistreat other people. But what that verse is saying is that on Judgment Day, my one-on-one -on -one with Jesus is going to involve this question. He's going to look at me and he's going to say, Aaron, what was the spiritual condition of the people that I entrusted to you at Trader's Point? What, what was their formation? Did you encourage them to be formed into the image and likeness of Jesus, which meant that at times you needed to teach some things that they didn't want to hear, which meant that you needed to come around them and lovingly guide and shepherd them. Can I just tell you that I'm honestly not looking forward to that question on judgment day. That is such a heavy verse and it is a heavy burden. And our lives are not shaped by content. They are shaped by relationship. It's the way that we grow. So can I just say to you, if you've been hurt, man, I'm so sorry that you have been hurt. You shouldn't have been hurt. But I wanna urge you to not isolate yourself, but to enter back into relationship when you're ready. Now, some of you I know, like you, you came to a big church because you wanted to stay anonymous because of church hurt. And I would just say, man, you're so welcome here. Sit on the back row, take all the time you need, come late, leave early, do whatever you need to heal. But at some point, can I urge you to put the jersey back on and get on the field and to jump into a group and to begin to serve once again and to not allow the bitterness to consume your heart. See, listen, if you only come to church with the mindset of what am I going to get out of this? It is just a matter of time before you aren't getting much. Man, anytime that I show up at church and I'm like overly nervous about how things are gonna go or how the sermon's gonna go, because you know all it takes, you know, I can get 99 words of encouragement and one critical comment. And you wanna know what the one thing I remember all week long? <laughs> the one critical comment, isn't that just how it works? You know, you can be encouraged all day long, you get one critical comment. And so when I just get all kind of pent up and you know, oh man, is, you know, how are things gonna go today? 
I have to take a deep breath before I get out of my car, before I walk in and say, God, it doesn't matter how things go today. It doesn't matter how well the sermon goes. Let me encourage people and give them hope. And as min- at the minute that I shift my mindset, that's when I don't get tired doing this. That's when I don't feel burned out or overly discouraged because I've taken the focus off of myself and put it onto other people. And so I wanna encourage you to enter back into relationship. I wanna encourage you to continue into that process of formation. And I would just unapologetically contend that you need a church community around you for that process to take place. Saying, I'll follow Jesus on my own. It's just better that way. I don't have to deal with the hassle of people. That's a lot like me saying to my wife, Lindsay, you know what? I really don't like our arguments and stuff. Our marriage, our marriage just works so much better when you're not around. Like that's just not gonna fly. And yet that's the logic that we use to talk about Jesus and his church. I know a lot of times people are critical of systems and structures and metrics and organization. Now, when those things become the ends, yes, and absolutely. However, to throw out all spiritual leadership equals ecclesiastical chaos. And you think damage happens in structure, you should see the damage that happens in a free for all. All you're left with is power dynamics and personalities. So the church is not an autocracy, meaning, you know, we'll do it however I want. And it's certainly not abdication. You know, we'll do it however you want. Just put your comment in the comment box out in the lobby and we'll do all that. It's accountability. We lead the church with accountability, meaning a posture of humility and transparency and vulnerability and teachability as we point people not to a pastor, not to a leader, but to Jesus who set the, the, the example for us Jesus' motivation was love. Jesus' method was washing people's smelly feet. Jesus' mission was to seek and to save. And we take our cues from him, which by the way, his church hurt enables us to be forgiven, cleansed, and healed. Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah the prophet is prophesying the crucifixion of Jesus and sounds a lot like hurt. And it says there, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and look the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Today, I can't think of a more fitting thing to do to wrap a message on hurt and a series on deconstruction than for us to take communion together as a church family across all campuses and locations. And maybe if you're watching online, you can find something to participate with us in this, but I just wanna encourage you to grab your communion cup and to commune with your heavenly father, with Jesus who is willing to be hurt so that we could quite possibly experience healing. And so I wanna encourage you to take the the piece of bread that represents his body broken for you and take this in remembrance of Jesus. Scripture says the cleansing of sin is not possible without the shedding of blood from a perfect lamb. 
And Jesus was our perfect spotless lamb whose blood was shed so that we could be cleansed. Father, we come to you today. We thank you that Jesus was not above being put into a vulnerable spot where he might be betrayed, wounded, and hurt for our sake. And so God, we wanna, we wanna copy his motivation. We wanna copy his methods. We wanna be on mission with him. God, I know that there's a number of people who've been hurt by others, who've been hurt by people they never should have been hurt by. And I ask today that your Holy Spirit would meet with them right in that seat that they're sitting in. Maybe would meet them right in their living room or their kitchen or the treadmill or their car as they are in traffic, listening to this message, that they would just have a divine moment with you. A moment when they realize they need to let go of the bitterness and the anger and the wounding that is keeping them in a prison cell of their own making, but to step into the forgiveness that you've made available to them by way of the cross, even if reconciliation on this side of eternity is not possible. So God, allow us to step into that so that we can be healed and so that we can keep our eyes fixed upon you as we seek to bring hope to a very hurting world. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.